Hello, and welcome to Pontifex. I'm Fry. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> you sound so light and airy. You must be very excited to record. We haven't recorded in ages. It's been a while. And I'm Bree, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. I have to sound as light and airy as you do today. And this is episode 45, Pope Celestine the First. Celestine. Yeah, it is definitely my favorite pope name, aside from the funny ones. So, yeah, I just love that name, Celestine. It's a nice, gentle, wafting name. It really is. And there are some really interesting Pope Celestines that we're going to be covering. So it's just a good name all around. And this is going to be a world tour episode. So we are going all over the empire for this one. Are you ready? Sure. Okay, so Celestine was born in Campania, the peninsular region of Italy that's just south of Rome. His father's name was Priscus. Another Priscus. We've had so many Priscuses. There's also some theories, mainly propagated by historian John Gilmary Shea, the, quote, father of American Catholic history, that Celestine might have been a relative of the Emperor Valentinian. So he may have been from a very noble and very wealthy family, but we don't have any actual evidence that comments on his early life that would give us any indication of that, so unless he has a source that we don't, which is possible, very, very possible, we don't have any reason to believe that that is true. I mean, that's his life work. Maybe he's got... Yeah, this is what I'm thinking, but there, there's nothing cited in his actual work that tells us where he got that information, so... It's from his secret basement trove. Ah, come on, I need access to that secret basement trove. I think that's the first time I'll ever say that. <laughs> <laughs> Generally, secret basement troves are not where we want to go. That's exactly... Yep. We know he had a decently long church career. We know that, for a time, Celestine lived in Milan with St. Ambrose, the Bishop of Milan, and was heavily influenced by him. Which is really no surprise, since he was one of the most massive figures in the church at this time. Like, he is 150% getting a special episode, and that might be a collab, so spoilers, sizzle. That would have been sometime before Ambrose's death in 397. So pretty early on. Then we have the first official mention of him in 416 in a letter from Pope Innocent I, which refers to him as, quote, Celestine the Deacon. So he'd already reached that stage and had likely served for a few years, at least in that capacity. Then in 418, St. Augustine wrote a letter to him, Epistle 192, which is extremely reverential and flattering. So he's clearly made quite the impression on Augustine. The letter opens with, To my venerable lord and highly esteemed and holy brother Celestine, Augustine sends his greeting in the lord. This letter is so full of the same kind of flattery with, like, I'm just going to read you this one segment. Rejoicing, therefore, in your health, which is most earnestly desired by me, I return to your holiness the salutation which I was owing. But I always owe you love, the only debt which, even when it has been paid, holds him who has paid it to a debtor still. For it is given when it is paid, 
but it is owing even after it has been given, for there is no time at which it ceases to be due. And wherefore, my lord and brother, I willingly give to you and joyfully receive from you the love which we owe to one another. The love in which I receive I still claim, and the love in which I give I still owe. Mm, I don't know what to say about that. There's actually really not a lot of content in this letter. The love. There is some love. I will repeat. It's the poison for Cusco. Cusco's <laughs> poison. The poison made specifically for Cusco. There's an episode of, I think, Friends, where one of the characters, I think it's Ross, is giving a speech. But he doesn't know what to say, so he's talking about the love of the giving and the receiving. Yeah! This is exactly what's happening here. It's this meandering exploration of the ideas of love. So it's really an unusual letter. Usually when Augustine has something to say, he says it right away. But this is just a letter to say hi. Augustine, what are you doing? <laughs> it's just... I mean, we've had priestly crushes in the past before, but usually there's some distance of history there. This one seems like full on in the moment. Now, whether the reverence coming from Augustine is from the potential fact that maybe he's from that esteemed noble family with ties to the emperor, or if this is because he was such an admirable figure in the church, we really can't be sure. But Augustine hasn't minced his words when he's been unhappy with religious leaders or secular leaders in the past. So we do know that for whatever reason, Celestine has definitely impressed him. So we can extrapolate that he has become, at this point, an impressive figure in the whole of the church. And we can back that theory up as well when we look at his election. Last week, we saw the chaotic outcome of what had happened when a bad pope left the church divided, where even a good candidate being elected to the papacy couldn't be elected without massive controversy and divide. But now, after the stability left by Boniface, and the fact that anti-pope Eulalius and his supporters didn't try to make another bid for the papacy, it is said that Celestine was, quote, elected with the consent of the entire city, with no opposition whatsoever. That's pretty cool. And that is from Augustine in his Epistle 261. So maybe a little bit biased source here, but elected with no problems. Now, on that note of St. Augustine and Celestine having a very close friendship, it's not really a surprise that one of the first things that he officially does as Pope is to address an issue that came to him directly from Augustine. Augustine's epistle, 261, requests Celestine's aid in dealing with Antonius, or Antony, the Bishop of Fisula. Now, this is a very awkward situation for Augustine, because he'd been the one to consecrate and recommend Antony to become the Bishop in Fisula, and now he had come to believe that he'd made a terrible mistake. Sometimes you make mistakes, especially in regards to fistulas. <laughs> a fistula is always a mistake. <laughs> in the epistle, Augustine admits, quote, I am so racked with anxiety and grief that I think of retiring from the responsibilities of the Episcopal office and abandoning myself to demonstrations of sorrow corresponding to the greatness of my error. 
I know, Augustine. I understand. Fistulas are always mistakes. So he is really incensed about the issue he's having here with Antony of the Fistula. Unfortunately, we have no idea what kind of actual wrongdoing that Antony is accused of. It's just one of those grave crimes moments. So maybe it has something to do with his unfortunate fistula. Maybe he's just showing people unbidden and they were not prepared for that. I know someone like that. Yep, yep. I know who you're thinking of. <laughs> for sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would consider that a grave crime. So <laughs> don't show me your fistula ever, please. <laughs> so we actually briefly mentioned this whole situation last week because Augustine had convened a synod in Numidia to depose Antony. And then he had been greatly upset when Boniface had stepped in and affirmed that if Antony turned out to be innocent, he would be restored. And clearly, Augustine does not want him to be restored. He wants nothing more to do with this man, who is his mistake, and wants to just distance himself from the whole colossal cock-up. So he turns to the new pope, who he clearly has a lovely relationship with, hoping that he can issue a final word and bring this embarrassment for him to a close. And he does. Celestine's first officially documented act as Pope was to confirm the condemnation against Antony. So it's done. Now, we've been talking about this tense relationship between the African churches and Rome that started with, like, Zosimus pushing in and then the frustration when we saw Boniface, you know, stepping in and correcting his mistake. So, it's not terribly surprising that other African bishops who weren't Augustine looked on this declaration as just as irritating as the first two and chafed against the Pope once again meddling in African affairs. But that being said, in this case, it seems like even if it was an annoyance, it was otherwise generally accepted because no official complaints were issued after this point to Celestine directly the way that we've seen in the past. This issue with the African church will be far from over in the grand scheme of things, but for now, they seem to tolerate the decision of Celestine, and that was that. So then, probably bolstered by the fact that he didn't get a fight out of his African intervention, Celestine decided also to check in with the Gallic churches, Illyria, and the rest of Italy just to make sure the papacy was being solidly recognized. And this is pretty interesting, because when we look at the letters he sent, we get some really interesting insights into what might be going on in the provincial churches in a way we wouldn't get from other sources, mostly through, like, the inference of what the Pope needs to address. It gives us a little window into the church character and how it changes based on location. So first, to Italy. He reminds the church to uphold and know the ancient canons and adds that members of the laity should never be advanced in the church over those who were established church members, regardless of how popular, how strong or influential or holy this person might be. He says, quote, Populus docendus non secundus, which translates to the people need to be taught not to be followed. So, obviously, there are some people in the Italian churches who have gained positions of power and influence in the church for themselves through basically a cult of personality rather than going through the raiders of the faith. And Celestine wants to see a stop to this and tells them that if it happens again, 
the punishments would be significant. Now, to Illyria, he also reminds them to uphold the canons, and reminds them that they must maintain their allegiance to the Bishop of Thessalonica, the Vicar of the Pope. He reminds them that no bishops can be consecrated and no councils or synods can be held in Illyria without the participation and approval of Thessalonica first. So from this, perhaps the Illyrian churches had either fallen away from turning to Thessalonica first, or perhaps they'd kind of become more like Gaul when we had that whole aural situation, and they were like rejecting or ignoring the authority of the position. But now he's reminded them, and he says, get back in check. Now for Gaul, he wrote directly to the bishops of Vienne and Narbonne to check up that all is going well now that that whole aural thing has been settled. Then he reinforced for them that communion and absolution was not to be denied to any that sincerely sought it, especially in the case of a dying person, and that the determinative nature of penance shouldn't be about how long penance was, rather the genuine sincerity and the heart put into it. So obviously, we have some absolution denial going on in Gaul. Interestingly, he also prohibits bishops from dressing too outlandishly, saying, We should be distinguished from the common people by our learning, not by our clothes, by our conduct, not by our dress, by cleanness of mind, not by the care we spend on our person. But he also prohibits bishops from dressing like monks. So something is happening in the Gallic clergy where they are just a humble jumble of fashions and nobody knows what they're supposed to wear. He also advises them to take action against a monk called Daniel, who was causing some sort of disorder that isn't specified, but seemed to represent some sort of emerging pattern of, like, small pockets of unacceptable behavior and unorthodox doctrine. He says, quote, We are deservedly to blame if we encourage error by silence. Therefore, rebuke these people. Restrain their liberty of preaching. When St. Augustine died in 430, Celestine wrote another very long letter to the church in Gaul to praise the character of the African bishop, confirming his sanctity and the zeal in which he took to church doctrine and forbade any attack on his memory. Oh, that's so sweet. It is, but it's also a little odd to be writing to just Gaul about the Bishop of Hippo. You know what? He just wanted to let them know. And this was also due to the fact that at this time in Gaul, a famous and influential ascetic called John Cassian was gaining popularity as like a semi-Pelagian leader. And we know that anybody who had anything to do with Pelagianism probably hated Augustine, so he's saying, nah, don't even start. Speaking of Pelagianism, Celestine got on that case as well. Yes, Pelagianism has been officially condemned now by two popes, even though Zosimus had made a mess of it. But the church just wasn't really done beating up on these poor heretics of this poor monk yet. Celestine felt that they hadn't really gone far enough. So he had Celestius, Celestine, Celestius, two different people, Celestius is the chief Pelagian supporter that we had talked about previously. Celestine has him excommunicated and expelled, and then he decided to take the fight to them. After all, Pelagianism hadn't originated in Italy or this side of the empire, because it had come from Britain. 
So Celestine sends two Gallic bishops, Germanus of Auxerre and Lupus of Troy, to Britain in 429 with the express purpose of confronting the bishops who supported Pelagian teaching and for all intents and purposes, fighting it until it died away over there. Then, as we just mentioned, a new semi-Pelagian movement had begun to take shape in southern Gaul in Marseille, so Celestine wrote zealously and actively to condemn them as well, and to send the letter that forbade attacks on the memory of Augustine. Now, we haven't really talked about this, so semi-Pelagianism, as the name somewhat implies, was meant to be some sort of compromise between the Pelagian views on grace and the hardcore Augustinian orthodoxy that condemned against it. Their teachings were predicated on the fundamental difference between faith and an increase in faith. Two different things. Faith in itself was free will and the perfection bestowed on humanity without grace, and the increase of faith is God's work. So unlike Pelagianism full stop, they didn't reject original sin as a concept, and agreed that God's grace was the only avenue to overcoming original sin, but they argued that a man's desire for salvation could come from his free will and self-empowerment rather than the inevitable intervention of God. For this time, this is all we really need to say about semi-Pelagianism, but it'll come back in the future. Just to wrap up Celestine's involvement with Pelagianism, we have to briefly talk about the notion of Celestine's extant writings. There were a series of epistles thought to be authored by Celestine, referred to as the Capitula Celestini, which were ten decisions kind of made on the subject of grace against Pelagianism that played a very large part in the ongoing development of what will be known as Augustinianism, orthodox doctrine based on St. Augustine's writing. These letters were thought for a long period of time to be authored by Celestine, but are now thought to have been written by St. Prosper of Aquitaine, so we cannot credit Celestine for them. But now on to the biggie with Celestine, which has to do with Nestorianism. Uh, what? This was a theology that sprung from the teachings of Nestorius, a priest from Antioch who had been elevated to the Bishop of Constantinople. At first, it seemed that Nestorius was a bishop that was well-liked and supported by the church, and his elevation in 428 had been approved by Celestine. But over time, large segments of the church began to grow suspicious when it seemed that Nestorius was openly receiving Pelagians who had been banished from other parts of the empire. Then upon closer look, it became evident that Nestorius had some ideas of his own, and now being able to preach from such a large platform, his ideas were starting to spread. So Nestorius's ideas were focused on the understanding of the two natures of Christ, the humanity and the divine God. Is Christ a man or is he God? And he believed that these two were not simply natures of a single being, but instead that within Christ there were two separate persons that the God and the human Christ were essentially separate and independent persons. So already this is a problem. And so we're clear, the church did approve the idea of the two natures of Christ as orthodoxy, but it's viewed as a 
what's called a hypostatic union, where the two natures are full and perfect together, but they exist in one individual existence. So this idea from Nestorius of two persons of Christ being separated had other consequences of logic. For example, if the natures were separate persons, then Mary shouldn't be called Theotokos, which is God-bearer, because she gave birth to the human person of Christ. So she should be called Christotokos. What, you called it Nestorianism? Mm-hmm. That they're not like a Russian nesting doll? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's that kind of theory, the, the nesting doll theories. We'll use that because we're going to have to talk about Nestorianism for a very long time. So that will be perfect. When we need our visuals, the Nestorians have the two separate nesting dolls, one inside of the other. And Mary doesn't... Mary only is the Christokos, not the Theotokos. So she didn't give birth to God. But this really doesn't sit well for the people of the church and is quickly met with resistance even in his own bishopric and hardcore condemnation from others. And most notably, who comes up to rise against him is the Bishop of Alexandria, St. Cyril. And this is our first introduction to Cyril, but he's going to be right up there as a major influential player of the era, and a controversial one, too. And he goes after Nestorius, and he writes very zealously to condemn his ideas, particularly this rejection of Mary as the God-bearer. And he goes out and he excommunicates Nestorius and anyone who followed his teachings in what is called the Twelve Anathemas of St. Cyril. And so word of this unrest reaches the Pope, who looks to Cyril to provide him with a proper report of this alleged heresy. And Cyril does this, providing a very detailed and very thorough account of the Nestorian doctrine, which Celestine receives at a synod that he convenes in Rome in 430. And after hearing the full testimony, Celestine issues a full condemnation of an Nestorianism as heresy, quote, compelled by the sacred canons and the letters of our most holy father Celestine, bishop of the Roman church. Such authority. And he orders that Cyril would proceed as the papal agent to carry out the deposition and excommunication unless Nestorius issued a full recantation of his heretical viewpoints within 10 days of the sentence. And he also uh, issues a retraction of any excommunication that had been professed by Nestorius. So anybody who Nestorius had condemned is fine. Nestorius is condemned and Cyril will proceed against him unless he comes to defend himself. And just to ensure that this decision was carried out without doubt, he wrote letters detailing the proceedings to Nestorius, who is the Bishop of Constantinople, and the major bishops in the nearby areas like John of Antioch, Flavian of Philippi, Juvenal of Jerusalem, and Rufus in the Vicariate of Thessalonica. Now, when Nestorius received the decree, it is said that he just refused. I refuse. Not only to defend his beliefs, but also because Cyril was proceeding against him. And when he was proceeding against him, he allegedly made harsher demands against him than what was originally dictated in Celestine's letter. So Cyril is taking this on with all of the overzealousness 
that comes with being appointed to a new task. Now, why he did this is unclear. Some historians have speculated that Cyril didn't want to be subservient to Rome, so he felt the need to issue his own version of condemnation, or maybe he just really hated Nestorius so much that he exaggerated. We can't be sure. I'm not sure that I buy the argument that he didn't want to be a subject of Rome, since we've seen him write to the Pope about his concerns about Nestorius in the first place. But either way, Nestorius is refusing Cyril's demands for recantation. And so the excommunication and the deposition was passed. And this was despite urging from others like John of Antioch, who wrote to Nestorius, urging him to not lose his head. And that is a like a verbatim quote, which is kind of funny to see the expression, don't lose your head in an ancient text. Yeah, a little. Now, John of Antioch may have been a supporter, or at least a sympathizer to Nestorius, as we'll see. And just the idea is that Nestorius was teaching probably very definitely had a greater foothold in Antioch. So he's trying to get him to maybe, you know, go along, play by the rules, and maybe you won't be excommunicated and disposed. But this will not be the end of it, because now the emperor who's in the east, Theodosius II, he wants to get involved. But for once, this doesn't seem to be like because the emperor and the pope are on opposing sides of the issue necessarily. Although it does seem that he was convinced to get involved by Nestorius himself, who thought maybe he could have Cyril condemned instead. So Emperor Theodosius summons for an ecumenical council to be held at Ephesus in modern-day Turkey near Izmir, which we've seen before because it was ancient Smyrna. This council would be held in 431, and it is our third ecumenical council. Ooh! So the main purposes of this council were to, one, confirm the Nicene Creed, because you have to do that every time, and two, review the condemnation of Nestorianism. Celestine, again, as we've seen with these councils, did not attend, but he did send papal legates, Arcadius and Projectus, to oversee the council, and only through his approval would any decision be final. But these legates showed up late to the council, and by then the council had already agreed to excommunicate Nestorius. So the legates were able to easily ratify the decision since it was what the Pope wanted anyways. And Nestorius and those who supported him are going to remain a problem and a schism for about a hundred years, despite the fact that they have now been excommunicated. So very, very quick on how the council went down, because despite this being an ecumenical council, we don't need a full episode dedicated to it. But it does have a, a little bit of interesting character and a lot of drama, so. Because of the location of this council at Ephesus, it took a long time for all of the invited parties to actually arrive, which meant that for quite a few weeks, there were a lot of bishops just, like, waiting around and discussing and debating impatiently, which you know, never really leads to good feelings. And when Cyril arrived, he got antsy. He really, really wants to begin this council. He wants to get it over and done with. He is like kind of the rising star in this, and he just wants to be the one to condemn Nestorius once and for all. But neither the legates from Antioch or Rome had arrived, so he was prevented from starting the council initially by the emperor's representative, Candidian. 
Although it didn't last very long, and eventually they do decide to go ahead before these delegations arrived, when everyone got tired of waiting. During the actual council, Nestorius was obstinate and argumentative, especially when it came to Cyril. He argued that Cyril had no right to stand in judgment of him, despite that having been the decree of the Pope. And that didn't really stop the council from issuing the condemnation against him. Job done. Unfortunately, this really, really irritated the Antiochian delegation when they arrived, led by Bishop John. So they decided that now that we're here, we came all this way, you've already had the council, we are going to have a separate council hearing of our own in the same place once they got there. And they decided to condemn Cyril. And they used some pretty inflammatory language, calling him, quote, a monster born and educated for the destruction of the church. Oh, I almost choked out my drink there. <laughs> yeah, that's a quote right out of Gibbon, so. They're not too happy with Cyril for going on without them. Then the Roman legates arrived, and they resumed the council with Cyril, the one that had already started. And so Cyril, hearing about his supposed excommunication, goes ahead and throws an excommunication for John of Antioch in there, too. So, you're going to do this to me, I'm going to do it to you. We're back at rivaling councils. And according to papalencyclicals.net, both of these councils sent their decisions to the emperor, who refused both depositions and both excommunications, and the two are going to take a long time to make peace with one another. Like, John and Cyril are now going to be at odds for at least two years. Fair. Yeah, I mean, it's just kind of a, a shitty move all the way around. Nobody's really in the right there. That being said, the other decisions that were made by the Cyrilline Council were confirmed, which were the following. Nestorius is condemned. The natures of Christ are hypostatic. Mary will always be the God-bearer. And the Nicene Creed was the only Orthodox declaration of faith, and it was anathema to pen another that was different, and to deny the decisions of this council would be excommunicable. Pretty straightforward. So that's done. Nestorius has been condemned. That issue is so far, far, far from over. I'm still writing about it. But for now, it's good. But we're not quite done with heresies, because guess who's back? Back again. Mm, who could be back? Uh, Novationism. Novation's back! Tell a friend. <laughs> well, they never left, but they've popped their heads back up long enough to get some attention and for Pope Celestine to come against them quite hard. And we get this from Socrates Scholasticus, our future children's television star, who tells us, quote, Celestine took away the churches from the Novations at Rome and obliged Rusticula, their Novation bishop, to hold his meetings secretly in private houses. So anything that had been constructed or founded by the Novationists in this time period was publicly completely confiscated, and it forced them back into clandestine hiding. So, whack-a-mole. They've come back up, now they're back down. And of course, when we know that there are heretics around, who else shows up? Arianism. Manny! Manny and oh, friends! Manny and friends. I don't know. There's too many heresies. Well, we know that Arianism is still alive and well in today's world. Wow, okay, yeah, we do. Whenever there's heretics that come to the forefront, Manny and friends are going to end up getting targeted as well. 
They won't go away. And this time they've really managed to get on the wrong side of the Imperial family. At this time, we're dealing in the West with Emperor Valentinian III. Well, actually, we're dealing with his mother, Galla Placidia, who is serving as regent for the infant emperor. And she full-on banishes the Manichaeans from Rome, full stop. If you are a Manichaean, you need to get out, out, out now. And this is fully supported by Pope Celestine. Finally, on our world tour, we're going to look at Celestine's final international endeavor. Ireland. Pope Celestine sent the very first bishop to oversee Ireland. This was a man called Palladius. Bet you weren't expecting to hear that name. Oh, everyone thinks they know who the first bishop in, in Ireland was. No. So this is Palladius, who he personally consecrated and then sent to Ireland in 431, as recorded in the Irish Annals. Now, unfortunately for Celestine, Palladius's time in Ireland was quite short-lived, as he was either banished by the King of Leinster, or he abandoned the bishopric full-on. In the Book of Armagh by Merchu, who, this is a 9th century manuscript, it says of Palladius, quote, Palladius was ordained and sent to convert this land lying under wintry cold, but God hindered him, for no man can receive anything from earth unless it be given to him from heaven. And neither did those fierce and cruel men receive his doctrine readily, nor did he himself wish to spend time in a strange land, but return to him who sent him. On his return hence, however, having crossed the first sea and commenced his land journey, he died in the territory of the Britons. So, the level of Christianization in this time in Ireland is unclear. But considering that the Empire was not in control of Britannia since 410, they had not received the widespread Christian growth that the rest of the Empire had, and were dealing primarily with Gaelic pagan kings. So it's very possible that Palladius absolutely wasn't warmly received or welcomed by the people he had come to convert and govern for the church. That being said... Palladius was no stranger to abandoning things that no longer served him. He had been married with a family before he just abandoned them for a life of asceticism, which he then abandoned to join the priesthood. So, I don't know. Either way, he doesn't last very long there. However, there was another priest that had a particular personal tie to Ireland and felt very much a calling to go serve as missionary and convert the Irish people. And this is St. Patrick. Never forget. So, the story of St. Patrick is worth a bonus episode sometime in the future to get the actual details of his complex life out, but in short, Patrick had been raised in Britain, in a family that had a history of church service. His father was a deacon, and his grandfather had been a priest at some point in his life, and at some point in Patrick's teenage years, around 16 or so, he was captured and held by a slave by Irish pirates for six years, during which time he underwent a more genuine and thorough conversion to Christianity, which he also credited for assisting his escape and the long, arduous journey back to his home. And since then, Patrick had ongoing religious visions in which he felt very called to the church and back to Ireland. So he was ordained as a priest, but it said in some of the sources on Pope Celestine that he had been originally rejected 
by Celestine to go back to Ireland. However, after Palladius abandoned the role, he agreed and personally commissioned Patrick to, quote, bring the gospel to the Irish. So this is pretty huge. Like, the impact of Patrick's Christianizing efforts can't be overstated. Ireland is still Catholic for this reason. And Celestine gets to share in a piece of that credit, as well as the fact that Patrick is able to spread orthodoxy before Pelagianism could creep in from Britain. So, to wrap up, the little local things about Celestine. Celestine was pretty much as dedicated to the local governance and the physical body of the church as he was the rest of the empire. He dedicated himself to the restoration of the Santa Maria Basilica in Trastevere and the Church of St. Sabina, both of which had been pretty badly damaged in the sack of Rome. He also decorated the catacombs of Priscilla and the Church of St. Sylvester with paintings representing the Council of Ephesus. We're at the point that there are so many churches that have been founded and restored that they're being decorated now. Woohoo! Additionally, there is a church music historian called Peter Jeffrey who believes that it was Pope Celestine who introduced the responsorial psalm into the Liturgy of the World Mass at Rome. He argues that this was a practice that already existed in Milan, and that when Celestine lived in Milan under Ambrose, he witnessed and absorbed the practice and then included it in Rome when he was made Pope. The same historian also thinks Augustine must have witnessed this responsorial psalm in Milan, since he also introduced it in Hippo at the same time. A little bit of liturgy, a little bit of churches, all the good stuff. And then Celestine died on the 26th of July in 432 from natural causes. He was buried at the catacombs of Priscilla on the Via Salaria, where he had contributed to building and restoration efforts during his papacy. He remained there until 820, when Pope Pascal I had his remains moved to the Basilica of St. Praxedes. However, for some reason, the Basilica of Mantua also claims to possess the relics of Pope Celestine. But when I went looking for this, it's not actually listed as one of their notable burials, so maybe this claim has been relented. But there is a statue outside of him at that church, so I have an image to show you for Facian Sanctus. But that's Celestine, and it's time to rate him. Papatum infallium. He is working at repressing heretics. He goes after the Manichaeans, the Novatians. The Pelagians, and most importantly, the Nestorians, and this is a big one. By condemning Nestorius, he's cutting off one of the extreme ends. And that is a statement that's not going to make a whole lot of sense right now, but it will as we go on. There's going to be some points there. He played a large role in asserting the primacy of the Apostolic See with Gaul, Italy, Africa, Illyria... He sends missionaries to combat Pelagian heresy in Britain. He's described as having this firm but gentle character that allows him to, to do what he does in a way that doesn't alienate people. And that's not something we've seen as much lately. It's pretty good. What do you want to give him? Um, you know what? I'll give him a six. That's pretty good. So you're going to give him a six. I am going to give him a 7, because I think it's pretty good. And even though I'm not including Ireland in this category, it is a pretty big one that we have all those converts. 
We're just putting it in a different category. So, 13 for Papatoma Valium. Fructus prohibitum. Nothing much. No scandals. Unless you consider him getting love poetry, basically, from Augustine worth some points. Yeah, no. I didn't think so. Seculari impactum. Ireland, okay? This is pagans who are now confronted with a major conversion, and this has a major impact on the whole history of Ireland. So it has converted them to Catholicism over time, of course. But they were secular before, and now they are going to be fierce, fierce Catholics. And of course, we could argue that without Celestine, there would be no St. Patrick's Day. Yeah, you're right. Pretty secular. What do you want to give him? You know, maybe like a, a three. Oh, okay. I don't particularly enjoy St. Patrick's Day. To be fair, I don't either. I don't drink, and it is a drinking holiday to the max. It is so loud. It's so loud. And yeah, I think because he converted... One of the fiercest and most dedicated Catholic populations of the world, and is a huge part of that legacy that carries on. St. Patrick is one of the best known saints in the whole of the Catholic Church, and it is because of this mission that Celestine set him on. I'm gonna give him an eight. Okay, well, maybe, uh, I don't know. You can stick with your three. Uh, you know, there are, uh, uh, e, uh, 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 five, I guess. <laughs> okay. All right. You've bumped it up to a five. So he gets a 13 for Seculari Impactum. He has affected the papacy as much as the secular population. Interesting. I am part Irish Catholic. Someone's going to yell at me. I'm, I, I, so am I. Where do you think I got this red hair? <laughs> I don't know. I don't have red hair. <laughs> that That is the only Irish manifestation that we have in my family, and I'm the only one with it, so. Fossium Sanctus. Okay, here is the picture we're going to judge him on. When we did Pope Zosimus, we went with, this is a man who's just been told that the things he's quoting is not from the Council of Nicaea. I look at this and see the same face, but I have no reason for it with Celestine, so he just looks really shocked. No, it looks like he heard a real, real loud sound and turned his head really fast. Or someone just told him a joke he didn't quite understand. Not because it was, like, a good joke that was went over his head, but it was just weird. No, it was probably like a seven-layer meme. Yes. Yeah, and he's kind of like, what are you even talking about? So, I mean, it's kind of good. I hit, he seems a lot more shiny than the other popes. Yeah, the back of that is really shiny. So is his forehead and his five head. He's not as turned away from us as Boniface was, who did not want to be Pope. It's, I don't know, it's very distinct. It's very clear. You can see it's, I don't know, it has a little bit more detail. I don't know how exactly to phrase it, but I like it. Yeah, he's got a, he's got a nice profile. Mm-hmm. I hate tonsures, though. Yeah, but they all have that. <laughs> They're popes. They gotta have tonsures. When do they stop having tonsures? Uh, oh, very, very modernly for the most part. Yeah, much, much later. You know, I can give him like a, a six. He looks very light and bubbly. He does. He looks like he would be a decent person to communicate with. 
you know what? This is the look he's giving when the friend's speech happens about the love of the giving and the receiving. It's exactly what he's, he's like, what are you talking about? Why are you still giving this speech? Stop talking now. Oh, that earned him an extra point. So and you're giving him a six. I'm giving him a seven, which gives him a 3.25 when we calculate it out. All right. Are you ready for another photo that looks absolutely nothing like that one? Yeah. Here you go. <laughs> Is that the penguin? <laughs> it looks like the penguin, doesn't it? I don't, I don't know how these can be the same man. There's just... That's the penguin. It's the penguin. The tonsure is, like, really, really adept to the shape of his really bulbous... He's got a boob for a head, for sure. It's weighty in a way that skulls should not be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's... Aside from the fact that his robe is just fantastic, there's nothing good about this picture. His uh, shock blanket? Yeah, he does look kind of shocked. Now, if you had told me that this was the Pope during the sack of Rome, I would have been like, yeah, all right, sure. I can get behind that. But And here is his statue on the top of the cathedral at Mantua. Ooh, his head is whipping around still. Yeah, it is. And he's, well, he's got something very large and presumably heavy there with that papal uh, mitre. The papal mitre is very large on his head. None of these three images look anything alike. I mean, that one could, theoretically, if you put a giant vase upon the first one's head. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting. I love having a statue to look at. He's got, like, a half Marilyn Monroe thing going on with his vestments. Oh, I need to pull this back down. Why is it up to begin with, sir? <laughs> is it windy up there? Oh. Your cloak isn't going. We started this episode light and airy, just like his papal vestments. Oh, I guess it's the bottom of his cloak has come up. That is what has happened. Mm. It's whooshing. It's getting a good whoosh. Tempus Pontificus. So, September 10th, 422, to August 1st of 432, which is 10 years, a score of 2.5. So, not bad. That's the longest we've seen in from Innocent, so it's pretty good. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round! Do, 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 do. Yes, he is a saint, and he has a, a couple feast days. His feast day is, for Ireland is April 6th. His Roman feast day is July 27th. Um, April 6th is the day his body was placed in the catacombs, so when we put him on our feast day calendar, that is the one we will use. But is he is a patron saint of something? He is not the patron saint of anything. So do we want to make him the patron saint of something? You know, I I kind of want it to be light and airy things, like bubbles and Japanese cakes. Okay, yeah, yeah. The wiggly food of Japan, yes. Everything. I said that when I was in Japan to someone. I said, yeah, Japan really likes wiggly food. And she was so confused. <laughs> And then as we walked around the city and I showed her all of the wiggly things, she's like, how have I never noticed? <laughs> They're light and airy and they wiggle. <laughs> they are. So we sh should we make him the patron saint of bubbles or the patron saint of wiggly food? <laughs> or bubbles and wiggly food? Ah, uh, wiggly food. Okay. No one will understand it. 
But it's fantastic. Pope Celestine, every time somebody eats a raindrop cake or one of those floofy cheesecakes mm. or, you know, the Japanese pancakes, you will be honored. And specifically the Japanese wiggly food because jello here is so heavy. Yeah, no, that's not really wiggly so much as warbly. <laughs> <laughs> There's the difference between wiggly and warbly for sure. So, come at me. <laughs> Jello jiggles, Japanese food wiggles. Yep, exactly. Wiggly and warbly, same thing. Yeah. Total score. His total score is very respectable. He has scored a 32.75. That's big, yeah. That's pretty good. That's our highest scorer since Damasus. And Damasus is only at high because he murdered so many people. Oh, he has such a scandal score. And, and you know, his score still sitting at a 69 seems most appropriate. But Celestine managed to score, like, almost half of that. That's pretty good. So now I gotta ask you, is he papely enough and pizzazzy enough with an impact enough for a papal bull? I didn't find him that pizzazzy. Sure, he, like, stomped out the heresies all over, but he wasn't... I don't want to go around telling people about him. He was just kind of a a nice pope. Well, like, he did things that were rough and firm and whatever, but you go, yeah, that guy was a good pope. But not an amazing pope. So I agree. No papal bull for you, Celestine. Don't worry. There are papal bulls coming in the future. I can guarantee it. Doubtful. Oh, 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 you say that now. <laughs> well, and on that note, we can make some, we have some thank yous to make. So we need to thank uh, Rex Factor and Totalis Rankium, as always, for supporting us tremendously and inspiring us all the time. The Roman and Byzantine History Group on Facebook. And then for recommending us, we need to thank Feminists Without Mystique, Age of Victoria, None Dare Call It Ordinary, Podcast on Germany, Sad Girl Study Guides, and Deep Into History. Yeah, we got a lot of recommendations this week. Yeah, thank you guys. You are so awesome, as usual, and you are helping people find us. And on that note, I just want to thank everyone who helped celebrate our anniversary show. We got so many podcasts that's shouted out and said congratulations or happy birthday to us and shared us with all of their listeners, which was really cool. That was not something that anybody had to do, but it was super, super lovely that they did. So you are all wonderful people. Thank you all. And with that, we can say thank you and goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>